So this computer science-based work has shown us that this is an important target, cross cancers, and we're now working to convince pharma to work with us to develop a clinical trial to treat these patients moving forward to prove it. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guests are Samik Chowdhury and Emily Hoskins. Samik is a physician scientist. He sees patients in his clinic and he runs a lab. And Emily is a grad student in bioinformatics, also known as big data. And she's a member of Samik's lab and a future star in cancer research. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. It's a great research story, a cancer detective story, really. Samik and his lab are experts in precision cancer medicine, which is determining the exact genetic mutation and genetic sequencing of or in a person's cancer, and then using this information to treat that patient with the best possible and available chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Samik and his team are also really good at coming up with new creative ideas and solutions, what they call their aha moments. And we're going to talk about one of those today, how they discovered a new genetic target for immunotherapy using big data, how they utilized gene amplification to move forward and then changed direction mid-course after Samik read something interesting in a Japanese study, which helped Emily come up with a, a breakthrough that's leading to a new diagnostic test and a clinical trial that they will hopefully start within a year. And what I just read is pretty much all I know about this project. So I'm really excited to learn more. So let's go. Welcome, Samik and Emily. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We're, we're, we're glad to be here. And, and I think your description of this being a detective story is spot on. We're, we're really cancer research detectives. Yeah, I like that. I, I we've we've used that phrase before when we've talked, and I think it really applies well here. So, sort of, what was the first clue? Like, I'm like, if this was a Sherlock Holmes story, when did that person walk into your office on Baker Street and and hire you? Well, uh, Doctor Watson okay. started <laughs> with an observation in a patient. Uh, one of our colleagues had reached out to us for some genetics advice uh, about a patient with a cancer of the cervix that was metastatic. And we reviewed the genetics and something caught our attention. And, you know, this may have happened about, you know, six or nine months before we started really thinking about it, but, but a, a certain gene finding caught our attention uh, and it just sort of disappeared from our thoughts and our, it wasn't part of our research. And, and it came back to, to, to our, our, our kind of point of our, our, uh, focus when we realized that it could be something really important. And the gene finding that this patient had was that instead of two copies of a gene in their cancer, they had many copies. And, and this gene could be a target for immune therapy. And that's what we recommended for that patient uh, way back in January of 2020. So if I understand you right, the normal abnormal or abnormality is to have two copies 
of the gene in the cancer cell. This patient's cells had multiple copies of the abnormal gene. Two copies are normal. And you get, you know, when you get a pair of genes uh, for genetics, you get one gene from mom and one gene from dad, and that's in all of our cells. But this tumor had maybe 10, 12, 14 copies of this gene. And what it could do is to suppress that person's immune system and allow their cancer to grow. And therefore it could be a target for immune therapy. Okay. And so this sort of was playing in the back of your mind over time. And then something must have happened to bring it to the forefront. So maybe six months later, uh, we had a new team member coming to rotate or visit with our research lab for the summer. Uh, this was Raven Vela, uh, an MD PhD student who's part of our lab. She's going to medical school and getting her PhD in computer science with us. And we wanted to give her a project to, to, to go after for the summer. So she had just four weeks. And you know, one thing that had been you know, floating in my, my, my mind since that patient was, well, can we dig into that a little more? What else can we learn about that gene? And so we started raving on that task. And it was a complex task. Her, her, her work was really to unify research fields of immunology, genetics, and cancer. And what she was able to do was use a resource called the Cancer Genome Atlas. So some 10,000 cancers worth of big data or genetics data. And she wrote some programming code. She analyzed that data. And, and she identified not only that gene, but about eight other genes that could have similar gene amplifications in cancer. Gene amplification is when these pairs of genes repl keep replicating and that causes the cancer to grow and, and, and does it also cause it to be hide from the immune system? That's right. So with extra copies of these genes in the cancer, the cancer has the ability to suppress the immune system, kind of like putting the brakes on the immune system. And by doing that, to go incognito and hide from a patient's immune system. And so why this is important is because we could target that and cut those breaks that the cancer is using and release the immune system with immunotherapy that matches that gene. And so now we've got nine genes that we could potentially investigate, gene amplification and 10,000 cancers worth of data. It's a lot of numbers. It sounds to me like there's so many targets. How do you narrow that down? Well, we'd eventually narrow that down uh, the following summer. So after Raven's rotation, she went back to medical school and we basically put the project on hold for a year. And, and the following summer, we would pick up where we left off. But we really just didn't have the resources, funding, personnel, uh, supplies to continue to pursue uh, until the following summer uh, where we had another student uh, come in to, to kind of help us kickstart this high-risk project uh, but this is, you know, again, a fundamental problem of research. We, we just don't have enough dollars to go after these high-risk, high-reward concepts. And, uh, you know, be, before we were able to kind of get back into this project the following summer, 
we were fortunate to, to share our idea, which is really potentially affecting patients who could benefit from immune therapy. We, we shared our idea uh, with a, a colleague at Ohio State, uh, Doug Alsdorf. He's a professor, an expert in earth sciences, and he's been a supporter of cancer research at the James. And we told him about our idea. We told him why we were stuck. We told him what we needed. And, and he asked a really simple question that helped fund our research for this idea, which was, what do you need to get this project going? And with, within a month, you know, we had $50,000 to help us kickstart this project. Uh, and, and so the next summer, uh, we have another MD-PhD student, Sarifa Adabola, spent another four weeks on the project. Uh, and what she did was to connect the genes to, well, which genes are actually active? So they may be amplified or, or you know, duplicated in some of those cancers, but we really needed to verify that they were actually being activated or expressed. And so she connected DNA data with RNA data, uh, wrote some more code, uh, tried to intersect different data sets at the Genome Atlas. And by the end of that summer, we had an idea that this was important. So Sarifa finishes the summer connecting the dots, doing due diligence of these DNA gene amplifications and understanding that they now are expressed in some of these cancers. So around this time, we were beginning to, to loop in uh, another PhD student, thanks to the funding support that we have. And we came across another paper that sort of put a twist in this story in this project. We came across a paper from 2016, four years prior, or four or five years prior, uh, from a Japanese research group studying a very, very rare leukemia called adult T-cell leukemia. And they used gene sequencing, looking at all the genome, all 6 billion letters. And instead of gene amplifications, which is duplicating part of your DNA, they found pieces of DNA that were twisted, inverted, or just plain deleted and lost. And they were always happening around these same genes. The, the genes are called PD-1 ligands, part of the immune system. And so this is a type of gene mutation that we call structural variation. And thankfully, we had a homegrown expert doing her PhD on the topic. And that's where Emily joins the project and brings her expertise to the topic. Okay, Emily. So... Fill us in on sort of the overview Samik gave you and then what you were going to then use big data to find out. Sure. So my previous project, I had been analyzing gene fusions in cancer using big data. And what if gene fusion is, um, kind of had to help visualize it. Imagine that I have a train that has 10 cars. And let's say that I cut it in half. So now I have five cars from that original train. And let's also say if I attach two cars from a different train, they become one abnormal fused train. And that's kind of a gene fusion. So it's mismatched parts of two different genes fused together 
that's a bad thing. And you using big data can find those. Yep, exactly. Okay. Interesting. So what's the next step? So the next step was using large data to look for these gene fusions uh, that involve these PD-1 ligands. So I was able to apply my skills that I learned from my previous project to um, identify gene fusions in these genes. And um, what we found from the the paper from Japan is that they found breakpoints, again, like where does the train break, at a certain location in the genome, in this gene. So we had the question, can we use big data to look for common breakpoints in other parts of the gene? Wow. And I take it you found it. Yes. Um, it's really interesting because we found a lot of breakpoints at that spot that was previously reported and what we learned, but we also found breakpoints in other parts of the gene that were kind of intriguing to us. So I'm not sure if this question is for Emily or for Samik. So how can you, can you help me understand what that means when you find these breakpoints in these gene fusions? What does that mean? These breakpoints, these twists in the genes, what was happening was it was disrupting something outside of the gene, but what it was doing was leading to high, high expression of the PD-1 ligands. And when that gene is highly expressed, it can suppress the immune system. And so here we found a way for cancer to make a twist in its gene of the PD-1 ligand and suppress the immune system and hide. And so if we have patients who might have these, it could be that they might be really good responders to a therapy targeting that PD-1 ligand. And in Emily's search of literature, over 20 publications, over 350,000 tumors, you know, along with other team members who've curated all this data, we've come across almost 100 patients who have had such twisties in the PD-1 ligand. And it turns out half of them really benefited from immunotherapy. And so this is an interesting finding to see 50% of patients benefiting when they have this, but it, it, it's, it's hard to interpret because it's retrospective. So these are patients, these 100 patients, 50 of whom benefited from immunotherapy because it targeted that PDL ligand. These are all over the country. And just by the fact that immunotherapy was the best possible alternative, not a fluke, but it, as a, a unintended good consequence, the therapy worked well. And you identified why it was working. So these are 100 patients worldwide from publications and data that we were able to identify, not by name, but from their data, that were good responders half the time to immunotherapy. And what I mean by good response, they shrank their tumors and that benefit lasted. So it was a durable response for advanced metastatic cancer. So, so that in terms of cancer treatment is incredible. And so that got us really excited about this target for immunotherapy and how we can try to find more patients is the next question. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. 
We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. Emily, I'm just really fascinated by what's the raw data you get? You get the genetic sequencing of these 100 patients, and then you delve into that to find these anomalies? The cool thing about big data analysis is putting it all together on one plot and identifying patterns. And so we took those hundred cases, we put them all on the same plot. And that's where I found that there was patterns of consistent breaks in specific genomic spaces. So that's the aha moment for the, for you that you then go to Samik with. Yep, exactly. And so Samik, when Emily tells you this, that we've found something, what does that mean? And what's the next step? Well, part of Emily's aha moment is that where these train cars were breaking or twisting is not part of today's tests. So whatever kind of gene testing is happening, it just does not see this part of the train car. We just don't include it. And so what we have to now do is design better tests so we can see where the train cars are breaking in the PD-1 ligand genes. And then we can identify which cancers have them, how best to detect this. And then we can identify patients who might benefit from an immunotherapy. So how do you devise such a test? So applying our floodlight strategy, we can sequence hundreds of tumor samples and we can apply different algorithms that detect these genetic alterations in from the sequencing um, data. And from there, we um, will probably learn how best to detect these variants that involves tweaking some of these algorithms that we're using. So you're basically programming the computer to find something new. And that's amazing to me and, and requires the big data skills that you have. Yeah, that's essentially what we're going to do. And it's like a needle in a haystack, essentially. Yeah, but with the supercomputer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> looking, <laughs> looking in that haystack. Okay, excellent. Um, then what? So now we have a genetic target. We have a means to try to detect it with the new floodlight. We have evidence that maybe half of patients who have it might be really good responders or may benefit from immunotherapy. So now we need a therapy. And it turns out that the therapies for the PD-1 ligands in immunology, they're some of the most commonly targeted therapies in immunology cancer research today. So there are maybe hundreds of companies using PD-1 therapies. Uh, these are usually antibodies. Every drug company has their version of it. Uh, the FDA has just seen, you know, drug application after application, and they're really quite similar. And so we're now working to share our concept with some of these companies to get their interest. And so, so we build a pitch. We tell them about the genetic target. 
Emily's research, what it looks like, how to detect it, the evidence that some of these patients are really good responders, some meaning a lot of them, half of them. And it's been a challenge. This is a field that has been studying PD-1 for more than a decade. And so for us to come back and say, hey, guys, we may have missed something really important about PD-1 that none of us knew about before. Well, that's not entirely true because we knew about it in 2016 from the Japanese group. So it's just sort of been overlooked. It was seen in a rare leukemia, but no one realized that it could be that much more important across all types of cancers. And so this computer science-based work has shown us that this is an important target across cancers. And we are now working to convince pharma to work with us to develop a clinical trial to treat these patients moving forward, to prove it. Okay, so I'm not sure I understand. Is this mean they're going to change their drug slightly or that they just target that drug toward these people you find with this um, gene sequencing mistake? So the drugs are out there. It needs no adjustment, no tweaking. We just need to offer it to these selected patients in a clinical trial. So we have to find the patients and offer them these existing drugs that are already out there in a new clinical trial. And there's multiple drugs that will work or does each patient by doing the, the gene genetic sequencing, you find the exact right drug? Well, there are multiple drugs that are pretty similar. So if you go to the drugstore and you've got heartburn, well, you may find there are five different drugs that do the exact same thing. So when you have an effective drug in drug development, you know, pharmaceutical companies will come along and play me too. And, and so it's not uncommon for you to see multiple types of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, multiple types of antacids, multiple types of antihistamines, multiple sprays for your nose. The same is true for immunotherapy and cancer. There are more than 40 anti-PD-1 therapies out there, and we just need one of them to work with us on this clinical trial concept to offer it to these patients that we identify through Emily's new algorithm approaches. And will these patients come here to the James, or can they be anywhere in the country or the world? Well, we're not sure how we're going to find them because we don't know what the true prevalence is because no one has done this floodlight approach. And so what we're proposing is a combination. One, a telemedicine study, so we could treat patients all over Ohio over a Zoom call and have the therapy shipped to them to a local office for treatment. And using a, what we call just in time approach. And what that means is we can have the clinical trial and then we can have different cancer programs across the country, they won't have to open our study only if they find a patient. And so if they find a patient through existing tests that are out there, they can then activate it just in time. And that it sort of reduces the risk and cost of opening the clinical trial where some clinical cancer centers might be worried about being able to find enough patients because it's so new to them. And they'll be able to find these patients all over the country using Emily's genetic testing floodlight concept that she created. Well, some of the tests that are already out there 
they're not quite the floodlight we're looking for, but they're just sort of accidentally seeing it in the shadows, if that makes sense. So the flashlight's pointed where it's pointed, but we're seeing a little bit of light shine to the side. So, so they're accidentally seeing some of these events, but they're not good at it yet. It's only with the true floodlight approach will we be accurate and sensitive, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to be able to find some patients already with existing techniques out there. We hope at some point at the end of Emily's work that we'll be able to convince diagnostics companies to upgrade from the flashlight to the floodlight. So you could have invented something that could come into common use down the road because it it takes a bigger approach and finds more anomalies, Emily. I think so. Um, especially what we learned from big data. I think this could be uh, potentially something new and exciting. I think the neat thing about what this very fundamental research is doing is it is having a real impact on patients. So within a year and a half, some of the fundamental genetics, computer science, big data research that has been done could turn into treating patients with incurable metastatic cancer that could have a great outcome. And I think that's the goal that our team is striving towards. And I think being able to connect those dots across these disciplines is what's really exciting. Uh, And I think it lights a fire for all of us, including myself, uh, being able to have that kind of impact through our research. So Emily, you're still, you're in the midst of your PhD program Mm -hmm. and you're going to go on to a great career, but what's it like now to be part of Samik's lab, to be part of, and really have come up with a, a big part of the ability to make this clinical trial happen and down the road possibly create something that's going to save lives. What's that like? And how's that going to encourage you to keep going in this career? I consider this a um, really exciting opportunity. And I'm very grateful for Smeek for helping me um, get to this point. And I think getting into this project is incredible. And what you're mentioning too, with moving forward with this clinical trial and hopefully um, being able to save lives. That's essentially why I got into cancer research, just having loved ones um, being affected by this. I, it drove me to find these answers that we've been looking for, for, you know, years. And I'm hoping to make maybe even a, even a small impact on some individuals. I, I think you have. And I, what I found fascinating in listening to this is that, the process of coming up with something that leads to a clinical trial. It's such a, a hit and miss. You you take a step forward, two steps back, two steps forward. Samik, I take, the, take it that that's normal in science and that there's a lot of obstacles and roadblocks you have to overcome and a lot of um, determination. You know, we're, we're talking about a, a year and a half of research with three young scientists and other team members and there were some twists, there were some challenges and some hurdles. And I think what's really worked is that we have this incubator of young scientists, you know, sort of riffing off one another and allowing their great ideas to take the project where it's gonna go. And, you know, always thinking, how can we help patients with this? And I think that's how it started. 
And I think that's how we're, we're, we're moving forward in the next year. Uh, so up ahead, you know, based on all the work that we've done so far and, 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 and what Emily is still working on today, you know, we've still got to convince uh, a pharmaceutical company to partner with us uh, for this idea. Uh, we've got to convince some other granting agencies to help fund some of this research. We're, we're grateful for the philanthropic support that we've had to kickstart it. Uh, we've got to optimize the algorithms uh, that Emily is using for the floodlight data. And uh, eventually we'll, we'll write the complete clinical trial. And, and I hope sometime uh, by the end of this year that we'll be you know, treating the first patient in that clinical trial and, and seeing the, the fruition of all this hard work. Well, when you do, maybe you guys can come back and we'll do a follow-up and report on your progress. We would love to share with you the next step. Well, Emily and Samik, thank you. Thank you for telling us all about this. And thank you for the, the great work you're doing to, to help your patients. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. I look forward to sharing the next story. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website cancer.osu.edu.